Magic Bonbons by L. Frank Baum. There lived in Boston a wise and ancient chemist by the name of Dr. Dawes, who dabbled somewhat in magic. There also lived in Boston a young lady by the name of Clarabelle Suds, who was possessed of much money, little wit, and an intense desire to go on the stage. So Clarabelle went to Dr. Dawes and said, I can neither sing nor dance. I can't recite verse nor play on the piano. I'm no acrobat nor leaper nor high kicker. Yet I wish to go on the stage. What shall I do? Are you willing to pay for such accomplishments? Asked the wise chemist. Certainly, answered Clarabelle, jingling her purse. Then come to me tomorrow at two o'clock, he said. All that night he practiced what is known as chemical sorcery, so that when Clarabelle Sutz came the next day at two o'clock, he showed her a small box filled with compounds that closely resembled French bonbons. This is a progressive age, said the old man, and I flatter myself your Uncle Dawes keeps right along with the possession. Now, one of your old-fashioned sorcerers would have made you some nasty, bitter pills to swallow. But I've consulted your taste and convenience. Here are some magic bonbons. If you eat this one with the lavender color, you can dance thereafter as lightly and gracefully as if you'd been trained a lifetime. If you consume the pink confection, you will sing like a nightingale. Eating the white one will enable you to become the finest speaker in the land. The chocolate piece will charm you into playing the piano better than Rubenstein, while after eating the lemon and yellow bonbon, you can easily kick six feet above your head. How delightful, exclaimed Clarabelle, who was truly enraptured. You are certainly a most clever sorcerer, as well as a considerate compounder. And she held out her hand for the box. Ahem, said the wise one. A check, please. Oh, yes, to be sure. How stupid of me to forget. She returned. He considerately retained the box in his own hand while she signed a check for a large amount of money, after which he allowed her to hold the box. 
herself. Are you sure you've made the candy strong enough? She inquired anxiously. It usually takes a great deal to affect me. My only fear, replied Dr. Dawes, is that I've made them too strong, for this is the first time I've ever been called upon to prepare these wonderful confections. Don't worry, said Clarabelle. The stronger they act, the better I shall act myself. She went away after saying this, but stopping it in the dry goods store to shop, she forgot the precious box in her new interest and left it lying on the ribbon counter. Then, little Bessie Bostwick came to the counter to buy a hair ribbon and laid her parcels beside the box. When she went away, she gathered up the box with her other bundles and trotted off home with it. Bessie never knew until after she'd hung up her coat in the hall closet and counted up her parcels that she had one too many. Then she opened it and exclaimed, Why, it's a box of candy. Someone must have mislaid it. But it's too small a matter to worry about. There are only a few pieces inside. So she dumped the contents of the box into a bonbon dish that stood on the hall table. And picking out the chocolate piece, she was fond of chocolates, ate it daintily while she examined her purchases. These were not many, for Bessie was only twelve years old and was not yet trusted by her parents to expend much money at the stores. But while she tried on the hair ribbon, she suddenly felt a great desire to play the piano, and the desire at last became so overpowering that she went into the parlor and opened the piano. The little girl, with infinite pains, contrived to learn two pieces, which she usually executed with a jerky movement of her right hand and a left hand that forgot to keep up, and so made dreadful discords. But under the influence of the chocolate bonbon, she sat down and ran her fingers lightly over the keys, producing such perfect harmony that she was filled with amazement at her own performance. That was the prelude, however. The next moment, she dashed into Beethoven's Seventh Sonata and played it magnificently. Her mother, hearing the unusual burst of melody, came downstairs to see what musical guest had arrived. But when she discovered it was her own little daughter who was playing 
so divinely. She had an attack of palpitation of the heart and sat down on a sofa until it should pass away. Meanwhile, Bessie played one piece after another with untiring energy. She loved music and now found that all she needed to do was to sit at the piano and listen and watch her hands twinkle over the keyboard. Twilight deepened in the room, and Bessie's father came home and hung up his hat and overcoat and placed his umbrella in the rack. Then he peeped into the parlor to see who was playing. Great Caesar, he exclaimed, but the mother came to him softly with her finger on her lips and whispered, Don't interrupt her, John. Our child seems to be in a trance. Did you ever hear such superb music? Why, she's an infant prodigy, gasped the astounded father. Beats blind Tom all hollow. It's, it's wonderful. As they stood listening, the senator arrived, having been invited to dine with them that evening. And before he had taken off his coat, the Yale professor, a man of deep learning and scholarly attainments, joined the party. Little Bessie played on, and the four elders stood in a huddled but silent and amazed group, listening to the music and waiting for the sound of the dinner gong. Mr. Bostwich, who was hungry, picked up the bonbon dish that lay on the table beside him and ate the pink confection. The professor was watching him, so Mr. Bostwich courteously held the dish toward him. The professor ate the lemon-yellow piece, and the senator reached out his hand and took the lavender piece. He did not eat it, however, for chancing to remember that it might spoil his dinner, so he put it in his vest pocket. Miss Bostwich, still intently listening to her precious daughter, without thinking what she did, took the remaining piece, which was the white one, and slowly devoured it. The dish was now empty, and Clarabel Sud's precious bonbons had passed from her possession forever. Suddenly, Mr. Bostwich, who was a big man, began to sing in a shrill, tremolo soprano voice, it was not the same song Bessie was playing, and the discord was shocking that the professor smiled. The senator put his hands to his ears, and Miss Bostwich cried in a horrified voice, William. Her husband continued to sing, as if endeavoring to emulate the famous Christine Nelson and paid no attention whatever to 
his wife or his guests. Fortunately, the dinner gong now sounded, and Miss Bostwich dragged Bessie from the piano and ushered her guests into the dining room. Mr. Bostwich followed, singing The Last Rose of Summer, as if it had been an encore demanded by a thousand delighted hearers. The poor woman was in despair at witnessing her husband's undignified actions and wondered what she might do to control him. The professor seemed more grave than usual. The senator's face wore an offended expression, and Bessie kept moving her fingers as if she still wanted to play the piano. Miss Bostwich managed to get them all seated, although her husband had broken into another aria, and then the maid brought in the soup. When she carried a plate to the professor, he cried in an excited voice, Hold it higher. Higher, I say. And springing up, he gave it a sudden kick that sent it nearly to the ceiling, from whence the dish descended to scatter soup over Bessie and the maid, and to smash in pieces on the crown of the professor's bald head. At this atrocious act, the senator rose from his seat with an exclamation of horror and glanced at his hostess. For some time, Miss Bostwich had been staring straight ahead with a dazed expression. But now, catching the senator's eye, she bowed gracefully and began reciting the charge of the light brigade in forceful tones. The senator shuddered. Such disgraceful writing he had never seen nor heard before in a decent private family. He felt that his reputation was at stake, and being the only sane person, apparently, in the room, there was no one to whom he might appeal. The maid had run away to cry hysterically in the kitchen. Mr. Bostwick was singing, Oh, promise me, the professor was trying to kick the globes off the chandelier. Miss Bostwich had switched her recitation to The Boy Stood on the Burning Deck, and Bessie had stolen into the parlor and was pounding out the overture from the Flying Dutchman. The senator was not at all sure he would not go crazy himself presently. So he slipped away from the turmoil, and catching up his hat and coat in the hall, hurried from the house. That night, he sat up late, writing a political speech he was to deliver the next afternoon at Faneuil Hall. But his experiences at the Bostwick's it so unnerved him that he could scarcely collect his thoughts. Often he would pause 
his head pittingly as he remembered the strange things he had seen in that usually respectable home. The next day he met Mr. Bostwick in the street, but passed him by with a stony glare of oblivion. He felt he really couldn't afford to know this gentleman in the future. Mr. Bostwick was naturally indigent at the direct snub, yet in his mind lingered a faint memory of some quite unusual occurrences at his dinner party the evening before, and he hardly knew whether he dared resent the senator's treatment or not. The political meeting was the feature of the day, for the senator's eloquence was well known in Boston. So the big hall was crowded with people, and in one of the front rows sat the Bostwick family, while the learned Yale professor beside them. They all looked tired and pale, as if they had passed a rather dissipated evening. The senator was rendered so nervous by seeing them that he refused to look in their direction a second time. While the mayor was introducing him, the great man sat fidgeting in his chair and happened to put his thumb and finger into his vest pocket. He found the lavender-colored bonbon he had placed there the evening before. This may clear my throat, thought the senator, and slipped the bonbon into his mouth. A few minutes afterwards, he arose before the vast audience, which greeted him with enthusiastic plaudits. My friends, began the senator in a grave voice, this is a most impressive and important occasion. Then he paused, balanced himself on one foot, and kicked his other foot into the air in the way favored by ballet dancers. There was a hum of amazement and horror from the spectators, but the senator appeared not to notice it. He whirled around on the tips of his toes, kicked right and left in a graceful manner, and startled a bald-headed man in the front row by casting a languishing glance in his direction. Suddenly, Clarabelle Sutz, who happened to be present, uttered a scream and sprang to her feet, pointing an accusing finger at the dancing senator. She cried in a loud voice, That's the man who stole my bonbons. Seize him. Arrest him. Don't let him escape. But the ushers rushed her out of the hall, thinking she had gone suddenly insane, and the senator's friends seized him firmly and carried him out of the stage entrance to the street, where they put him into an open carriage and instructed the driver to take him home. The effect of the magic bond 
Bon Bon was still powerful enough to control the poor senator, who stood on the rear seat of the carriage and danced energetically all the way home, to the delight of the crowd of small boys who followed the carriage, and to the grief of the sober-minded citizens who shook their heads sadly and whispered that another good man had gone wrong. It took the senator several months to recover from the shame and humiliation of this escapade, and curiously enough, he never had the slightest idea what had induced him to act in so extraordinary a manner. Perhaps it was fortunate the last bonbon had now been eaten, for they might easily have caused considerably more trouble than they did. Of course, Clarabelle went again to the wise chemist and signed a check for another box of magic bonbons. But she must have taken better care of these, for she is now a famous vaudeville actress. The Capture of Father Time by L. Frank Baum Jim was the son of a cowboy and lived on the broad plains of Arizona. His father had trained him to lasso a bronco or a young bull with perfect accuracy and had Jim possessed the strength to back up his skill, he would have been as good a cowboy as any in all of Arizona. When he was twelve years old, he made his first visit to the East, where Uncle Charles, his father's brother, lived. Of course, little Jim took his lasso with him, for he was proud of his skill in casting it, and wanted to show his cousins what a cowboy could do. At first, the city boys and city girls were much interested in watching Jim Lasso posts and fence pickets, but they soon tired of it, and even Jim decided it was not the right sort of sport for cities. But one day, the butcher asked Jim to ride one of his horses into the country to a pasture that had been engaged, and Jim eagerly consented. He had been longing for a horseback ride, and to make it seem like old times, he took his lasso with him. He rode through the streets demurely enough, but on reaching the open country roads, his spirits broke forth into wild jubilation and urging the butcher's horse to full gallop. He dashed away in true cowboy fashion. Then he wanted still more liberty, and letting down the bars that led into a big field, he began riding over the meadow 
and throwing his lasso at imaginary cattle while he yelled and whooped to his heart's content. Suddenly, on making a long cast with his lasso, the loop caught on something and rested about three feet above the ground while the rope drew taut and nearly pulled Jim from his horse. This was unexpected. More than that, it was wonderful, for the field seemed bare of even a stump. Jim's eyes grew big with amazement, but he knew he'd caught something when a voice cried out, Here, let go. Let go, I say. Can't you see what you've done? No, Jim couldn't see, nor did he intend to let go until he found out what was holding the loop of the lasso. Soon he resorted to an old trick his father had taught him, and putting the butcher's horse to a run, he began riding in a circle around the spot where his lasso had caught. As he thus drew nearer and nearer his quarry, he saw the rope coil up, yet it looked to be coiling over nothing but air. One end of the lasso was made fast to a ring in the saddle, and when the rope was almost wound up, and the horse began to pull away and snort with fear, Jim dismounted. Holding the reins of the bridle in one hand, he followed the rope, and an instant later saw an old man caught fast in the coils of the lasso. His head was bald and uncovered, but long white whiskers grew down to his waist. Above his body was a loose robe of fine white linen, and beneath the other arm he carried an hourglass. While Jim gazed wonderingly on him, this venerable old man spoke in an angry voice. Now then, get that rope off as fast as you can. You brought everything on earth to a standstill by your foolishness. Well, what are you staring at? Don't you know who I am? said Jim, stupidly. Well, I'm Father Time. Now make haste and set me free if you want the world to run properly. How did I happen to catch you? asked Jim, without making a move to release his captive. Uh, I don't know. I've never been caught before, said Father Time. But I suppose it was because you were foolishly throwing your lasso at absolutely nothing. Yeah, I didn't see you, said Jim. Of course you didn't. I'm invisible to the eyes of human beings unless they get within three feet of me. 
and I take care to keep more than that distance away from them. That's why I was crossing this field, where I supposed no one would be, and I should have been perfectly safe had it not been for your lasso. Now then, he added crossly, are you going to get that rope off? Why should I? asked Jim. Because everything in the world stopped moving the moment you caught me. I don't suppose you want to make an end of all business and pleasure, and war and love, and misery and ambition and everything else, do you? Not a watch has ticked since you tied me up here like a mummy. Jim laughed. It really was funny to see the old man wound round and round with coils of rope from his knees up to his chin. It'll do you good to rest, said the boy. From all I've heard so far, you lead a rather busy life. Indeed I do, replied Father Time with a sigh. I'm due someplace else this very minute. And to think, one small boy is upsetting all my regular habits. Too bad, said Jim, with a grin. But since the world has stopped anyhow, it won't matter if it takes a little longer recess. As soon as I let you go, Time will fly again. Hey, where are your wings? I haven't any, answered the old man. That is a story cooked up by someone who never saw me. As a matter of fact, I move rather slowly. I see. You take your time, joked the boy. You may as well untie me at once, implored Father Time. Nope, said Jim with a determined air. I may never capture you again, so I'll hold you for a while and see how the world wags without you. Then he swung the old man, bound as he was on the back of the butcher's horse, and getting into the saddle himself, started back to town, one hand holding his prisoner, and the other guiding the reins. When he reached the road, his eye fell on a strange tableau. A horse and buggy stood in the middle of the road. The horse, in the act of trotting, with his head held high and two legs in the air, but perfectly motionless. In the buggy, a man and a woman were seated, but had they been turned into stone, they could not have been more still and stiff. There's no time for them, sighed the old man. Won't you let me go now? Not yet, replied the boy, 
He rode on until he reached the city, where all the people stood in exactly the same positions they were in when Jim lassoed Father Time. Stopping in front of a big dry goods store, the boy hitched his horse and went in. The clerks were measuring out goods and showing patterns to the rows of customers in front of them. But everyone seemed suddenly to have become a statue. There was something very unpleasant in this scene, and a cold shiver began to run up and down Jim's back, so he hurried out again. On the edge of the sidewalk sat a poor crippled beggar, holding out his hat, and beside him stood a prosperous-looking gentleman who was about to drop a penny into the beggar's hat. Jim knew this gentleman to be very rich, but also very stingy, so he ventured to run his hand into the man's pocket and took out his purse, in which was a twenty-dollar gold piece. This glittering coin he put in the gentleman's fingers instead of the penny, and then he restored the purse to the rich man's pocket. That donation will surprise him when he comes to life, thought the boy. He mounted the horse again and rode up the street. As he passed the shop of his friend, the butcher, he noticed several pieces of meat hanging outside. I'm afraid that meat will spoil, he remarked. It takes time to spoil meat, answered Father Time. This struck Jim as being strange, but true. It seems time meddles with everything, he said. Yes, you've made a prisoner of the most important personage in the world, groaned the old man and you haven't enough sense to let him go again. Jim didn't reply, and soon they came to his uncle's house, where he again dismounted. The street was filled with teams and people, but all were motionless. His two little cousins were just coming out the gate on their way to school, with their books and slates underneath their arms so Jim had to jump over the fence to avoid knocking them down. In the front room sat his aunt, reading her Bible. She was just turning a page when time stopped. In the dining room was his uncle, finishing his luncheon. His mouth was open, and his fork poised just before it, while his eyes were fixed on the newspaper folded beside him. Jim helped himself to his uncle's pie, and while he ate it, he walked out to his prisoner. There's one thing I don't understand, he said. What's that? asked Father Time. Why is it that I'm able to move around 
while everyone else is froze up. That is because I'm your prisoner, answered Father Time. You can do anything you wish with time now, but unless you are careful, you'll do something you'll be sorry for. Jim threw the crust of his pie at a bird that was suspended in the air where it had been flying when time stopped. Then a spirit of mischief came into the boy's head, for he happened to think that the present opportunity to have fun would never occur again. He tied Father Time to his uncle's hitching post that he might not escape and then he crossed the road to the corner grocery. The grocer had scolded Jim that very morning for stepping into a basket of turnips by accident. So the boy went to the back end of the grocery and turned on the faucet of the molasses barrel. That'll make a nice mess when time starts the molasses running all over the floor said Jim with a laugh. A little further down the street was a barber shop, and sitting in the barber's chair, Jim saw the man that all the boys declared was the meanest man in town. He certainly did not like the boys, and the boys knew it. The barber was in the act of shampooing this person when time was captured. Jim ran to the drugstore, and getting a bottle of thick and sticky mucilage, he returned and poured it over the ruffled hair of the unpopular citizen. That'll probably surprise him when he wakes up, thought Jim. Nearby was the schoolhouse. Jim entered it and found that only a few of the pupils were assembled. But the teacher sat at his desk, stern and frowning as usual. Taking a piece of chalk, Jim marked on the blackboard in big letters the following words. Every scholar is requested to yell the minute he enters the room also please throw his books at the teacher's head. Signed, Professor Sharp. That ought to raise a nice rumpus, murmured the mischief maker as he walked away. On the corner stood Policeman Mulligan, talking with old Miss Scrapple, the worst gossip in town always delighted in saying something disagreeable about her neighbors. Jim thought this opportunity was too good to lose. So he took off the policeman's cap and brass button coat and put them on Miss Scrapple while the lady's feathered and ribbon hat he placed jauntily on the policeman's head. The effect was so comical that the boy laughed out loud, and many people were standing near the corner 
so this would create a sensation when time started on his travels. Then the young cowboy remembered his prisoner, and walking back to the hitching post, he came within three feet of it and saw Father Time still standing patiently within the toils of the lasso. Father Time pleaded with the boy, Let me go, and in return, I will promise to forget all about my capture. The incident won't do much harm anyway, for no one will ever know that time has halted the last three hours or so. All right, said Jim cheerfully. I'll let you go. But he had a notion some people in town would suspect time had stopped when they returned to life. He carefully unwound the rope from the old man, who, when he was free, rearranged his white robe and nodded farewell. The next moment he had disappeared, and with a rustle and rumble and a roar of activity, the world came to life again and jogged along as it always had before. Jim wound up his lasso, mounted the butcher's horse, and rode slowly down the street. Loud exclamations came from the corner, where a great crowd of people had quickly assembled. From his seat on the horse, Jim saw Miss Scrapple, attired in the policeman's uniform, angrily shaking her fists in Mulligan's face, while the officer was furiously stamping on the lady's hat, which he had torn from his own head amidst the jeers of the crowd. As he rode past the schoolhouse, he heard a tremendous chorus of yells, and knew Professor Sharp was having a hard time to quell the riot caused by the sign on the blackboard. Through the window of the barber shop, he saw that mean man frantically belaboring the barber with a hairbrush, while his hair stood up stiff as bayonets in all directions. And the grocer ran out of his door and yelled, Fire! while his shoes left a track of molasses wherever he stepped. Jim's heart was filled with joy. He was fairly reveling in the excitement he'd caused when someone caught his leg and pulled him from the horse. What are you doing here, you rascal? cried the butcher angrily. Didn't you promise to put that beast into Plimpton's pasture? And now I find you riding the poor nag around like a gentleman of leisure. That's a fact, said Jim. I clean forgot about the horse. And then Jim happily rode away with a content smile on his face.
many years ago, there lived on a stony, barren New England farm a man and his wife. They were sober, honest people, working hard from early morning until dark to enable them to secure a living from their land. But although they worked hard, they had happiness in their hearts and love for their farm. Their house, a small, one-story building, stood on the side of a steep hill, and the stones lay so thickly about it that scarce anything green could grow from the ground. At the foot of the hill, a quarter of a mile from the house, by the winding path, was a small brook, and the woman was obliged to go there for water and to carry it up the hill to the house. This was a tedious task, and with the other hard work that fell to her share, it made her gaunt and bent and lean. Yet she never complained, but meekly and faithfully performed her duties, doing the housework, carrying the water, and helping her husband hoe the scanty crop that grew on the best part of their land. One day, as she walked down the path to the brook, her big shoes scattering the pebbles right and left, she noticed a large beetle lying on its back and struggling with its little legs to turn over that its feet might again touch the ground. But this it couldn't accomplish. So the woman, who had a kind heart, reached down and gently turned the beetle with her finger. At once it scampered from the path and she went on to the brook. The next day as she came for water, she was surprised to see the beetle again lying on his back and struggling helplessly to turn. Once more the woman stopped and set him on his feet, and then, as she stooped over the tiny creature, she heard a small voice say, Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for saving me. Half frightened at hearing a beetle speak in her own language, the woman started back and exclaimed, Land sakes, surely you can't talk like humans. Then, recovering from her alarm, she again bent over the beetle, who answered her, Why shouldn't I talk, if I have anything to say? Because you're a bug, replied the woman. That is true, and you saved my life, saved me from my enemies, the sparrows. And this is the second time you've come to my assistance, so I owe you a debt of gratitude. Bugs value their lives as much as human beings, and I am a more important creature than you, in your ignorance, I suppose. But tell me, 
said about it, and dug so far deep in the ground that it could hardly reach the top to climb out again. But not a drop of water was found. Perhaps you didn't dig deep enough, his wife said when he told her of his failure. So the following day he made a long ladder which he put into the hole, and then he dug, and dug, and dug, until the top of the ladder barely reached the top of the hole, but there was still no water. When the woman next went to the brook with her pail, she saw the beetle sitting on a stone beside her path, so she stopped and said, husband has dug the well, but there's no water. Did he put the pump in the well? asked the beetle. No, she answered. Then do as I commanded, put in the pump, and if you don't get water, I promise you something still more precious. 
saying which, the beetle swiftly slid from the stone and disappeared. The woman went back to the house and told her husband what the bucket said. Well, replied the simple fellow, there can't be any harm in trying. So he got the pump from the barn and placed it in the well. And then he took hold of the handle and began to pump while his wife stood by to watch what would happen. No water came, but after a few moments, a gold piece dropped from the spout of the pump. And then another, and another, until several handfuls of gold lay in a little heap on the ground. The man stopped pumping then and ran to help his wife gather the gold pieces into her apron. But their hands trembled so greatly through excitement and joy that they could scarcely pick up the sparkling coins. At last she gathered them, and together they ran to the house, where they emptied the precious gold on a table and counted the pieces. All were stamped with the design of the United States men and were worth five dollars each. Some were worn and somewhat discolored from use, while others seemed bright and new, as if they really hadn't been handled much. When the value of the pieces was added together, they were found to be worth three hundred dollars. Suddenly the woman spoke. The beetle said truly when he declared we should get something more precious than water from the well. But run at once and take the handle off the pump or anyone should pass this way and discover our secret. So the man ran to the pump and removed the handle which he carried to the house and hid under his bed. They hardly slept a wink that night, lying awake to think of their good fortune and what they should do with their store of yellow gold. In all their former lives, they had never possessed more than a few dollars at a time, and now the cracked teapot was nearly full of gold coins. The following day was Sunday, and they rose early and ran to see if their treasure was safe. There it lay, heaped snugly within the teapot, and they were so willing to feast their eyes on it that it was long before the man could leave it to build the fire, or the woman to cook the breakfast. While they ate their simple meal, the woman said, We will go to church today and give thanks for the riches that have come to us so suddenly, and I will give the pastor one of the gold pieces. It is well enough to go to church, replied her husband, and also to return thanks. But in the night I decided how we will spend all our money 
so there will be none left for the pastor. Well, we can pump more, said the woman. Perhaps, and perhaps not, he answered cautiously. What we have, we can depend on. But whether or not there's going to be more in the well, I cannot say. Then go and find out, she returned, for I'm anxious to give something to the pastor, who is a poor man and deserving. So the man got the pump handle from under his bed, and going to the pump, fitted it in place. Then he set a large wooden bucket under the spout and began to pump. To their joy, the gold pieces soon began flowing into the pail, and seeing it about to run over the brim, the woman brought another pail. But now the stream suddenly stopped, and the man said cheerfully, That is enough for today, good wife. We've added greatly to our treasure, and the parson shall have his gold piece. Indeed, I think I shall also put a coin into the contribution box. Then, because the teapot wouldn't hold any more gold, the farmer emptied the pail into the wood box, covering the money with dried leaves and twigs, so that no one would suspect what might lie underneath. Afterward, they dressed themselves in their best clothing and started for church, each taking a bright gold piece from the teapot as a gift to the pastor. Over the hill and down into the valley beyond they walked, feeling so happy and light-hearted that they didn't mind the distance at all. At last, they came to the little country church and entered just as the services began. Being proud of their wealth and of the gifts that they had brought with the pastor, they could scarcely wait for the moment when the deacon passed the contribution box. But at last the time came, and the farmer held his hand high over the box and dropped the gold piece so that all the congregation could see what he had given. The woman did likewise, feeling important and happy at being able to give the good parson so much. The parson, watching from the pulpit, saw the gold drop into the box, and could hardly believe that his eyes did not deceive him. However, when the box was laid on his desk, there were the two gold pieces, and he was so surprised that he nearly forgot his sermon. When the people were leaving the church at the close of the services, the good man stopped the farmer and his wife and asked, Where did you get so much gold? The woman gladly told him how she had rescued the beetle. And how in return, they had been rewarded with the wonderful pump. The pastor listened to it all gravely, and when the 
the story was finished, he said, According to tradition, strange things happened in this world ages ago, and now I find that strange things may also happen today. For by your tale, you found a beetle that can speak, and also has power to bestow on you great wealth. Then he looked carefully at the gold pieces, and continued, Either this money is fairy gold, or it is genuine metal, stamped at the mint of the United States government. If it is gold from a fairy, then it will disappear within 24 hours, and will therefore do no one any good. If it is real money, then your beetle must have robbed someone of the gold and placed it in your well. For all money belongs to someone, and if you've not earned it honestly, but have come by it in mysterious ways you mention, it was surely taken from the persons who owned it without their consent. Where else could real money come from? The farmer and his wife were confused by this statement and looked guiltily at each other, for they were honest people and wished to wrong no one. So, you think the beetle stole the money? asked the woman. By his magic powers, he probably took it from its rightful owners. Even bugs which can speak have no consciences. It cannot tell the difference between right and wrong. With the desire to reward you for your kindness, the beetle took from its lawful possessors the money you pumped from the well. Perhaps it really is fairy gold, suggested the man. If so, we must go to the town and spend the money before it disappears. That would be wrong, answered the pastor, for then the merchants would have neither money nor goods. To give them fairy gold would be to rob them. What then shall we do? asked the poor woman wringing her hands with grief and disappointment. Go home and wait until tomorrow. If the gold is then in your possession, it is real money and not fairy gold. But if it is real money, you must try to restore it to its rightful owners. Take also these pieces which you've given me, for I cannot accept gold that is not honestly come by. Sadly, the poor people returned to the home, being greatly disturbed by what they had heard. Another sleepless night was passed, and on Monday morning they arose at daylight and ran to see if the gold was still visible. It is real money after all, cried the man, 
where not a single piece has disappeared. When the woman went to the brook that day, she looked for the beetle, and sure enough, there he sat on a flat stone. Are you happy now? asked the beetle as the woman paused before him. We are very unhappy, she answered. For although you have given us much gold, our good parson says it surely belongs to someone else and was stolen by you to reward us. Your parson may be a good man, returned the beetle with some indignation. But he certainly is not overwise. Nevertheless, if you don't want the gold, I can take it from you as easily as I gave it. But we do want it, said the woman fearfully. That is, if it is honestly come by. It is not stolen, replied the beetle sulkily. It now belongs to no one but yourselves. When you saved my life, I thought how I might reward you, and knowing you to be poor, I decided gold would make you happier than anything else. You must know that although I appear so small and insignificant, I'm actually king of all the insects, and my people obey my slightest wish. Living as they do close to the ground, the insects often come across gold and other pieces of money which have been lost by men and have fallen into cracks or crevices or become covered with earth or eaten by grass or weeds. Whenever my people find money in this way, they report that to me, but I've always let it lie, because it could be of no possible use to an insect. However, when I decided to give you gold, I knew just where to obtain it without robbing any of your fellow creatures. Thousands of insects were at once sent by me in every direction bring the pieces of lost gold to his hill. It cost my people several days of hard labor, as you may suppose, but by the time your husband had finished the well, the gold began to arrive from all parts of the country, and during the night my subjects dumped it all into the well. So, it with a clear conscience, knowing that you robbed no one. This explanation delighted the woman, and when she returned to the house and reported to her husband what the beetle had said, he also was overjoyed. So they at once took a number of the gold pieces and went to the town to purchase provisions and clothing and many things of which they had long stood in need. 
but so proud were they of their newly acquired wealth that they took no pains to conceal it. They wanted everyone to know that they had money, and so it was no wonder that when some of the wicked men in the village saw the gold, they longed to possess it themselves. If they spend this money so freely, whispered one to another, there must be a great store of gold at their home. That is true, was the answer. Let us rush there and ransack the house before they return. So they left the village and hurried away to the farm on the hill, where they broke down the door and turned everything topsy-turvy until they discovered the gold in the wood box and the teapot. It didn't take them long to make this into bundles, which they slung on their backs and carried off, and it was probably because they were in a great hurry that they didn't stop to put the house in order again. Presently, the good woman and her husband came up the hill from the village with their arms full of bundles and followed by a crowd of small boys who had been hired to help carry the purchases. Then followed others, youngsters and country louts, attracted by the wealth of the pair who, from simple curiosity, trailed along behind like the tail of a comet and helped swell the concourse into a triumphal procession. Last of all came Guggins, the shopkeeper, carrying with much tenderness a new silk dress which was to be paid for when they reached the house. All the money they'd taken with them to the village had been lavishly expended. The farmer, who had formerly been a modest man, was now so swelled with pride that he tipped the rim of his hat over his left ear and smoked a big cigar that was fast making him ill. His wife strutted along beside him like a peacock, enjoying to the full the homage and respect her wealth had won from those who formerly deigned not to notice her, and glancing from time to time at the admiring procession in the rear. But when they reached the farmhouse, they found the door broken in, the furniture strewn in all directions, and their treasures stolen to the very last gold piece. The crowd grinned and made slighting remarks of a personal nature, and Guggins, the shopkeeper, demanded in a loud voice the money for the silk dress he had brought. Then the woman whispered to her husband to run and pump some more gold, while she kept the crowd quiet, and he obeyed quickly. But after a few moments, he returned with a white face, to tell her the pump was dry, and not a gold piece could now be coaxed from the spout. 
the procession marked back to the village, laughing and jeering at the farmer and his wife, who had pretended to be so rich, and some of the boys were naughty enough to throw stones at the house from the top of the hill. Mr. Guggins carried away his silk dress after severely scolding the woman for deceiving him, and when the couple at last found themselves alone, their pride had turned to humiliation and their joy to bitter grief. Just before sundown, the woman dried her eyes and having resumed her ordinary attire, went to the brook for water. When she came to the flat stone, she saw the king beetle sitting on it. The well is dry, she cried out. Yes, answered the beetle calmly. You have pumped from it all the gold my people could find. But we are now ruined, said the woman, sitting down on the path beginning to weep. For robbers have stolen from us every piece of gold we possessed. I'm sorry, returned the beetle, but it is your own fault. Had you not made so great a show of your wealth, no one would have suspected you possessed a treasure or thought to rob you. As it is, you've merely lost the gold which others would lost before you. It will probably be lost many times more before the world comes to an end. But what are we to do now? She asked. Well, what did you do before I gave you the money? As we were plenty happy, she said. Then that is what awaits you, remarked the beetle. And no one will ever try to rob you of that, you may be sure. And he slid from the stone and disappeared for the last time. She thought about what he said shrugged, smiled, and felt a glow of happiness return that she'd not felt in a long time. The Queen of Quark by L. Frank Baum A king once died, as kings are apt to do, being as liable to shortness of breath as other mortals. It was high time this king abandoned his earth life, for he had lived in a sadly extravagant manner, and his subjects could spare him without the slightest inconvenience. His father had left him a full treasury, both money and jewels being in great abundance, the foolish king 
just deceased had squandered every penny in rich living. He had then taxed his subjects until most of them became paupers, and this money vanished in more rich living. Next, he sold all the grand old furniture in the palace, all the silver and gold plate and bric-a-brac, all the rich carpets and furnishings, and even his own kingly wardrobe, reserving only a soiled and moth-eaten robe to fold over his threadbare raiment. And he spent the money in further rich living. And so, this spendthrift king found it. He now picked all the magnificent jewels from his kingly crown and from the round ball on top of his scepter, and he sold them and spent the money. Rich living, of course. But at last he was at the end of his resources. He couldn't sell the crown itself, because no one but the king had the right to wear it. Neither could he sell the royal palace, because only the king had the right to live there. So finally, he found himself reduced to a bare palace, containing only a big mahogany bedstead that he slept in a small stool on which he sat to pull off his shoes and his moth-eaten robe. In this situation, he was reduced to the necessity of borrowing an occasional dime from his chief counselor with which to buy a ham sandwich. And the chief counselor didn't have many dimes. One who counseled his king so foolishly was likely to ruin his own prospects as well. So the king, having nothing more to live for, died suddenly and left a ten-year-old son to inherit the dismantled kingdom, the moth-eaten robe, and the jewel-stripped crown. No one envied the child, who had scarcely been thought of until he became king himself. Then he was recognized as a personage of some importance, and the politicians and hangers-on, headed by the chief counselor of the kingdom, held a meeting to determine what could be done for him. These people had helped the old king to live richly while his money lasted, and now they were poor and too proud to work. So they tried to think of a plan that would bring more money into the little king's treasury, where it would be handy for them to help themselves. After the meeting was over, the chief counselor came to the young king was playing bed-top in the courtyard, and said, Your Majesty, we have thought of a way to restore your kingdom to 
its former power and magnificence. All right, replied his majesty carelessly. How will you do it? By marrying you to a lady of great wealth, replied the counselor. Marrying me, cried the king. I am only ten years old. I know it is to be regretted, but your majesty will grow older, and the affairs of the kingdom demand that you marry a wife. Can't I marry a mother instead? asked the poor little king who had lost his mother when a baby. Certainly not declared the counselor. To marry a mother would be illegal. To marry a wife is right and proper. Can't you marry her yourself? inquired his majesty, aiming his peg top at the chief counselor's toe and laughing to see how he jumped to escape it. Let me explain said the counselor. You haven't a penny in the world, but you do have a kingdom. There are many rich women who would be glad to give their wealth in exchange for a queen's coronet, even if the king is but a child. So we have decided to advertise that the one who bids the highest shall become the Queen of Quark. If I must marry at all, said the king after a moment's thought, I prefer to marry Niana, the armorer's daughter. Oh, no, she is too poor, replied the counselor. No, her teeth are pearls. Her eyes are amethysts, and her hair is like gold, declared the little king. True, your majesty, but consider that your wife's wealth must be used. How would Niana look after you pulled her teeth of pearls, plucked out her amethyst eyes, and shaved her golden head? The boy shuddered. Well, have your own way, the boy said despairingly. But let the lady be as dainty as possible, and also a good playmate. We shall do our best, returned the chief counselor, and went away to advertise throughout the neighboring kingdoms for a wife for the boy king of Quark. There were so many applicants for the privilege of marrying the little king that it was decided to put him up at auction in order that the largest possible sum of money should be brought into the kingdom. So on the day appointed, the ladies gathered at the palace from all of the surrounding kingdoms from Bilkon 
as the Republic of Macveld. The chief counselor came to the palace early in the morning and had the king's face washed and his hair combed, and then he patted the inside of the crown with old newspapers to make it small enough to fit his majesty's head. It was a sorry-looking crown, having many big and little holes in it where the jewels had once been, and it had been neglected and knocked around until it was quite battered and tarnished. Yet, as the counselor said, it was the king's crown, and it was quite proper he should wear it on the solemn occasion of his auction. Like all boys, be they kings or paupers, his majesty had torn and soiled his one suit of clothes, so that they were hardly presentable, and there wasn't any money to buy new ones. Therefore the counselor wound the old robe around the king and sat him on the stool in the middle of the otherwise empty audience chamber. And around him stood all the courtiers and politicians and hangers-on of the kingdom, consisting of such people as were too proud or lazy to work for a living. There was a great number of them, you may be sure, and they made an imposing appearance. Then the doors of the audience chamber were thrown open, and the wealthy ladies, who aspired to be Queen of Quok, came trooping in. The king looked them over with much anxiety, and decided they were each and all old enough to be his grandmother and ugly enough to scare away the crows from the royal cornfields. And the rich ladies never even looked at the poor little king squatting on his stool. Instead, they gathered at once around the chief counselor who acted as auctioneer. How much am I offered to be able to wear the crown of the queen of Quark? asked the counselor in a loud voice. Where is the queen's crown? inquired a fussy old lady who had just buried her ninth husband and was worth several millions. There isn't any crown at present, explained the chief counselor. But whoever bids highest will have the right to wear one, and she can then buy it. Oh, said the fussy old lady, I see. Then she added, I'll bid fourteen dollars. The other women heard this low bid, and one immediately countered with a much higher bid. $14,000, cried a sour-looking woman who was thin and tall and had wrinkles all over her skin. Like a frosted apple, the king thought, 
The bidding now became fast and furious, and the poverty-stricken courtiers brightened up as the sum began to mount into the millions. You'll bring us a very pretty fortune after all, whispered one to his comrade, and then we shall have the pleasure of helping him to spend it. The king began to be anxious. All the women who looked at all kind-hearted or pleasant had stopped bidding because they didn't have the money. And the slender old dame with the wrinkles seemed determined to get the crown at any price, and with it the boy husband. This ancient creature finally became so excited that her wig got crosswise of her head and her false teeth kept slipping out, which horrified the little king greatly, but she would not give up. At last, the chief counselor ended the auction by crying out, Sold to Mary Ann Brochinski de la Porcus for three million nine hundred thousand six hundred and twenty-four dollars and sixteen cents. And the sour-looking old woman paid the money in cash and on the spot, which proves that this is a fairy story. The king was so disturbed at the thought that he must marry this hideous creature that he began to wail and weep whereupon the woman boxed his ears soundly. But the counselor reproved her for punishing her future husband in public, saying, You are not married yet. Wait until tomorrow, after the wedding takes place. Then you can box his ears as much as you wish. But at present, we prefer to have people think this is a match of love. The poor king slept but little that night, so filled was he with terror of his future wife. Nor could he get the idea out of his head that he preferred to marry the armorer's daughter, who was about his own age. He tossed and tumbled around his hard bed until the moonlight came in at the window and lay like a great white sheet on the bare floor. Finally, in turning over for the hundredth time, his hand struck against a secret spring in the headboard of his big mahogany bedstead, and at once, with a sharp click, a panel flew open. The noise caused the king to look up, and seeing the open panel, he stood on his tiptoes, and reaching within, he drew out a folded paper. It had several leaves fastened together like a book, and on the first page was written, When the king is in trouble, this leaf he must double, and set it on fire to obtain his desire. This was not very good poetry, 
king had spelled out in the moonlight, he was filled with joy. There's no doubt about me being in trouble, he exclaimed. So, I'll burn it at once, and just see what happens. He tore off the leaf, and put the rest of the book in its secret hiding place. Then, folding the paper double, placed it on top of his stool, lit a match, and set it on fire. It made a horrid smudge for so small a paper, and the king sat on the edge of the bed and watched it eagerly. When the smoke cleared away, he was surprised to see, sitting on the stool, a round little man, who with folded arms and crossed legs, sat calmly facing the king and smoking a black briarwood pipe. Well, here I am, he said. So I see, replied the little king. But how did you get here? Didn't you burn the paper? demanded the round man by way of answer. Yes, I did, acknowledged the king. Then you must be in trouble, and I've come to help you out of it. I'm the slave of the royal bedstead. Oh, said the king, I didn't know there was one. And neither did your father, or you wouldn't have been so foolish to sell everything he had for money. By the way, it's lucky for you he didn't sell this bedstead. All right, now then, what do you want? I'm not sure what I want, replied the king. But I know what I don't want, and that is the old woman who is going to marry me. That's easy enough, said the slave of the royal bedstead. All you need to do is return her the money she paid the chief counselor and declare the marriage off. Don't be afraid. You are the king, and your word is law. To be sure, said the majesty. But I am in great need of money. How am I going to live if the chief counselor returns to marry Ambrochinsky for millions? Oh, foo, that's easy enough, again answered the man. Putting his hand in his pocket, he drew out and tossed to the king an old-fashioned leather purse. Keep that with you, he said and you'll always be rich, but you can take out the purse as many twenty-five-cent silver pieces as you wish, one at a time. No matter how often you take one out, another will instantly appear in its place within the purse. Thank you, said the king gratefully. You've rendered me a great favor. For now I shall have the money for all my needs, and I won't be obliged.
obliged to marry anyone. Thank you a thousand times. Don't mention it, answered the other, puffing his pipe slowly and watching the smoke curl into the moonlight. Such things are easy to me. Is that all you want? It's all I can think of just now, returned the king. Then please close that secret panel on the bedstead, said the man. The other leaves of the book may be of use to you in due time. The boy stood on the bed as before, and reaching up, closed the opening so that no one else could discover it. Then he turned to face his visitor, but the slave of the royal bedstead had disappeared. I expected that, said his majesty, yet I'm sorry he did not wait to say goodbye. With a lightened heart and a sense of great relief, the boy king placed the leather purse underneath his pillow, and climbing into bed again, slept soundly until morning. When the sun rose, his majesty rose also, refreshed and comforted, and the first thing he did was to send for the chief counselor. That mighty personage arrived looking glum and unhappy, but the boy was too full of his own good fortune to notice it, and he said, I have decided not to marry anyone, for I've just come into a fortune of my own. Therefore I command you to return to that old woman the money she has paid for you for the right to wear the crown of the Queen of Quark, and make public declaration that the wedding will not take place. Hearing this, the counselor began to tremble, for he saw the young king had decided to reign in earnest, and he looked so guilty that his majesty inquired. Well, what is the matter now? Sire, replied the wretch in a shaking voice, I can't return the woman her money because I lost it. Lost it, cried the king in mingled astonishment and anger. Yes, your majesty, on my way home from the auction last night, I stopped at the drugstore to get some potash lozenges for my throat, which was dry and hoarse with so much loud talking. And your majesty will admit it was through my efforts the woman was induced to pay so great a price. Well, going into the drugstore, I carelessly left the package of money lying on the seat of my carriage, and when I came out again, it was gone, nor was the thief anywhere to be seen. Did you call the police? asked the king. Yes, I called, but they were all on the next block, and although they have promised to search for the robber, I have little hope they will ever find him. 
the king's side. What shall we do now? he asked. I fear you must marry Marian Brzezinski, answered the chief counselor. I will not marry her under any circumstances, declared the king. Well, is that private fortune you mentioned large enough to repay her? asked the counselor. Why, yes, said the king thoughtfully, but it will take some time to do it, and that shall be your task. Call the woman here. The counselor went in search of Marianne, who, when she heard she was not to become a queen, but would receive her money back, still flew into a violent passion and boxed the chief counselor's ears so viciously that they stung for nearly an hour. But she followed him into the king's audience chamber, where she demanded her money in a loud voice, claiming as well the interest due on it overnight. The counselor has lost her money, said the boy king, but he shall pay you every penny out of his own private purse. I fear, however, you will be obliged to take it in small change. That will not matter, she said, scowling on the counselor as if she longed to reach for his ears again. I don't care how small the change is, so long as I get every penny that belongs to me, and the interest. Where is it? Here, answered the king, handing the counselor the leather purse. It is all in silver quarters, and they must be taken from the purse, one at a time. But there will be plenty to pay your demands, and to spare. So there being no chairs, the counselor sat down on the floor in one corner, and began counting out silver, twenty-five cent pieces, from the purse, one by one. And the old woman sat on the floor opposite to him, and took each piece of money from his hand. It was a large sum, three million, nine hundred thousand, six hundred, and twenty-four dollars, and sixteen cents and it takes four times as many twenty-five cent pieces as it would dollars to make up the amount. The king left them sitting there and went to school, and often thereafter he came to the counselor and interrupted him long enough to get from the purse what money he needed to reign in a proper and dignified manner. This somewhat delayed the counting, but it was a long job anyway, so that didn't matter much. The king grew to manhood and married the pretty daughter of the armorer, and they now have two lovely children of their own. 
once in a while, they go into the big audience chamber of the palace and let the little ones watch the aged, old-headed counselor count out silver twenty-five-cent pieces to a withered old woman who watched his every movement to see he does not cheat her. And it is a big sum, three million nine hundred thousand six hundred and twenty-four dollars and sixteen cents in twenty-five cent pieces. But this is how the counselor was punished for being so careless with the woman's money. And this is how Mary Ambrojinsky de la Borges was also punished for wishing to marry a ten-year-old king in order that she might wear the crown of the Queen of Quark. This is the end of the story. I hope you are or even better, deeply asleep.